Welcome to the Watershed Lit Podcast Channel. I'm Greg Wilhelm, Director of Mason Creative Writing at George Mason University. Each semester, we bring six highly acclaimed authors and poets to campus for small group workshops with our MFA students, followed by a public reading in the evening. These events are presented in partnership with Mason Libraries. In spring 2021, MFA faculty member Tanya James led a conversation with Karen Russell. Karen's first novel, Swamplandia, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, and she has received the MacArthur Fellowship and a Guggenheim Award. She is the endowed chair of Texas State University's MFA program. Now we present Tanya James in conversation with Karen Russell. Hello, everyone. Hi, Karen. Hi, Tanya. It's dangerously intimate, this setting, I feel like. There are 126 totally. people here, but it's just, just me and you. I, I completely feel that way. It is, it is a little bit dangerous, right? It yeah. is. It is. Um, now, I, I'm, I'm so happy you're here. I'm going to embarrass you a little bit. I guess it's a little awkward for me to introduce you while in split screen, but I'm going to do it. We're going for it. Um, you can you can um, make facial expressions. As well. <laughs> Do your author photo face. Okay. It's my total delight to welcome Karen Russell to the visiting writer series at George Mason University. Karen and I uh, were in the same cohort at Columbia School for the Arts, where we both got our MFAs. And what I recall best about Karen was her disarming genius. Disarming because she would first charm you um, with her warmth and effervescence and general hilarity for presenting the class with a story um, in progress that contained all of these things, but was also cut through with this deep intelligence and her singular vision even then when she was like 12 or something. Um, and I was like, who is this mad genius? strolling around with a little backpack and a smile. Um, <laughs> it was frustrating, but um, also admirable. But um, Karen has, since those days, gone on to become one of our greatest fantasists, the recipient of a MacArthur Genius Grant and the Guggenheim, and the author of five celebrated works of fiction, including the novel Swamplandia, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, winner of the New York Public Library Young Lions Award, and one of the New York Times 10 Best Books of 2011. Her most recent book is the novella Sleep Donation, which is the story of an America in crisis, suffering a pandemic of insomnia. Hundreds of thousands of people have completely lost the ability to sleep. Our our hero, Trish Edgewater, is a top recruiter for Slumber Corps, an organization devoted to fighting the insomnia pandemic through sleep donations from healthy, peaceful sleepers. But her sense of duty and moral certitude is tested when she encounters Baby A, a seemingly miraculous universal sleep donor who may or may not be the only hope for humanity. In the New York Times book review, Michiko Kakutani wrote this of sleep donation, Russell creates a fully imagined world with its own rituals and rules and deftly satirizes the media and governmental responses to the plague of sleeplessness, another testament to her fertile powers of invention. We are so happy to have you, Karen. Welcome. <laughs> Tanya, thank you. Thank you for that beautiful introduction. You guys, I miss Tanya so much. And it's so funny. I mean, we really were such babies together, although, you know, in that strange and vertiginous fact, that was the oldest we ever been. So I'm sure that we thought we were sophisticated, you know, young artists in New York. But it's true. I forgot about Big Pink. 
this like giant Pepto-Bismol colored backpack. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot it had a and, name. Like, just like, I don't know. Yeah, for a big pink. And, you know, Columbia was like not a, not an inexpensive place to go to school. And I feel like there was like electrolysis happening in that backpack. I was always like dealing <laughs> salt packets and just really swiping whatever, you know, from that. You just see where we fell in the hierarchy because I would go to parties like on the law school side of campus. And it was like attractive lighting and open bars. And then we were all like fighting like tooth and nail for like, you know, bodega hummus. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the good times. I was also like fully formed. I feel the same way about you. That's what made me so happy about that direction. I felt the same way. I was like, this is the funniest (laughs) woman on the planet. And then I would read stuff from like, how am I getting boosted over the paywall to read this like award winning novel now, which was amazing. And we also had some like very brilliant people in like mm-hmm. this cohort like really i mean i'm mm-hmm. you know it's just an, an impressive an impressive yeah. group um yeah. and that was uh yeah it does not it does not feel that long ago um and i'm glad to you know i'm, I'm reuniting with tanya in this virtual space when i know we both have like four kids between us hidden away <laughs> so i'm also really <laughs> impressed at our framing magic you know like it's like you know <laughs> Just like rocket ships and just like oh god i'm not gonna do that the loneliest socks in the world (laughs) i was just having this debate before this call where my husband was like we have to let them go and i was like no (laughs) no i'm the same way all right so karen do you want to do you want to entice us with a a reading from this amazing book sleep donation i would love to i would love to and um i realize it's like a weird year to have a book come out at all i'm very grateful to you guys for um featuring this one it's a super strange little book and it was written originally in 2014. So it's had a really strange life and you know, it would not have been my first choice to release a book about an epidemic into our real pandemic, but that's, that's just what happened. And, um, you know, I think that was a beautiful, so now I wrote this and I was just imagining, I think, you know, Macondo and, and Marquez were kind of bubbling somewhere back there. I'm sure like the plague also, but I never anticipated a real pandemic putting us all into this, virtual space. So it's, it's, it's especially eerie. And when I, when I originally wrote this, I was really thinking about kind of like the strangeness of the internet a little bit and sort of this hyper connectivity where ideas can ricochet around the world sort of, you know, in milliseconds and we're all connected to this great sleeping eye of the internet and just that kind of, you know, dream and nightmare transfer. All right. So the greatest thing about uh, vintage saying that they would re-release this novella in print form. Originally, it was an ebook, and I I loved launching it that way. It also felt like a dark joke in a way to me, since it's sort of suggesting the possibility that this insomnia epidemic was created by the disrupted circadian rhythms of our like twenty four seven economy, and also the glowing unlidded eyeballs of these tiny devices that we're all totally addicted to. Myself especially. So it seems sort of funny in a, in a terrible way to kind of uh, have have this book exist only in this sort of liminal space, you know, as an ebook. But when Vintage said that they would put it out as a paperback, I was really excited. I really wanted it to be illustrated. So I wish that I was smart enough to um, know how to screen share these illustrations with you. But you can find them online, some of them. And I, I think they're so beautiful. There are these Italian artists, Ale and Ale. Who, who did kind of like a illustrated nightmare appendix for this book. And they also drew, um, this is like the sleep van. So in this alternate America, 
healthy dreamers can donate sleep to insomniacs. And so I'll just read like a tiny, the tiniest bit. As a slumber core volunteer, my duties are numerous and varied. Weekends, I mobilize the sleep van, a moonlit enterprise that dispatches a volunteer team to the homes of good sleepers who have signed up to donate their rest to insomniacs. Our sleep vans have a Spartan interior. The beds we call catch cots. If the van is equipped for infants and children, it features catch cribs and trundles. Nurses slip on the anesthetic mask, open the IV of special chemicals, relieving a donor of consciousness. Next, they clamp on and adjust the silver helmet, which does chafe a bit. One to two minutes after the loss of consciousness, once the donor enters a state of artificially stimulated sleep, the draw commences. The air in the sleep band turns balmy as the tubing heats. A donor's dream moist breast gets siphoned into nozzles that connect to our tanks. Healthy sleep is pumped out of the body in long, clear tubes. Weeknights I recruit. We set up for sleep drives in neighborhoods across the country right at sundown. Nurses swab out helmets in multiple vans, preparing to take sleep donations for testing. Administrators sit inside lit tents on suburban lawns, holding clipboards, pre-screening donors with an eligibility questionnaire to filter out those whose sleep is prone to nightmares, disturbance. We babble the questions to volunteers under the midnight pines. When was your last full night of deep, unbroken sleep, ma'am? When did you last dream about barking dogs, outer space, red grass, and ex-wife? Now please be honest, sir. If your sleep was disturbed by her face, check the box. For most of the 21st century, insomnia was treatable by prescription medications. And I can remember going with my father to pick up my sister's sleeping tablets from the owl-faced pharmacist. Dory's sleep trouble began early at age 11. Back then, before the disease progressed, medications reliably put her under. I used to study my sister's face on the pillow, trying to catch the moment when the Silenor took effect. Once her adolescent insomnia ratcheted up for unknown reasons into the full-blown disorder, Dory slept about four hours a night, and for years, this was enough. The body can be a marvel of resiliency, a cactus when it comes to sleep, capable of surviving on mere drops. By 20, Dory had developed a resistance to all sleep aids. She also became quite suddenly impossible to anesthetize. We learned this when she broke her leg in college and surgeons were forced to operate on a fully conscious Dory. The anesthesiologist is still writing papers about my sister. Her leg healed. Dory lost the ability to sleep even three hours a night. She could not stay down long enough to cycle into REM. She had to drop out of college and move into a white hospital room. What didn't they try on her? Dexmetodamine, propofol, sevuroflane, xenon. The trank gun used to bring down zoo elephants would have stopped her heart, or I'm sure they would have given that a go. Nobody could shade or muzzle her mind. For the next year and seven months, Dory barely slept. Then the loss became total. The final day of my sister's life unwound with zero regard for the moon or the sun, and she died awake after 20 days, 11 hours, and 14 minutes without sleep, locked flightlessly inside her skull. 
As an adolescent, I used to see it with jealousy because whereas I got auburn stubs, Dory had these fringed butterfly eyes, jet lashes that curled outrageously around her green irises. During her endless last day, I remember studying those eyelashes pasted to her skin at an angle of unrelieved attention. She blinked at me, her thinking slow as syrup, and I wished that she would not smile again, not ever again, not like that because by that point, every smile was an accident, a twitch driven by nothing that I recognized as human. My mouthy, gorgeous, stupid, brave sister Dory. Miss, drive it like you stole it, even when the only it available to us was our great aunt's haunted house of a wood-paneled Chrysler. Whoever heard of a car with termites? Miss, three jobs, two college majors, and there's a flask in my purse, was at this point a nobody. A vegetable, as they say, the doctor's potted plant. And I hated the sight of her facial muscles, pumpkin grinning on the pillow, her pale eyes twitching. And I hated watching her go speechless under the conglomerate weight of so much looking and thinking and listening and feeling. Her mind worn thin by the sound of every cough and the plinking moisture of every raindrop. These noises exploding like grenades through her naked awareness her mind crushed in the end by an avalanche of waking moments. Once sleep stopped melting time for Dory, she could not dig herself out. She was buried under snowflakes, minutes to hours to months. The official cause of death was organ failure. I know it doesn't sound like much on paper. So there's some, there's some cheery, a cheery excerpt. <laughs> Um, I promise there's some funny stuff in this, in this book. I hope there's some funny stuff. I think like, I think the pictures are so funny. That's like the jellyfish <laughs> dream. At some point, this seems super funny to me, Tanya. I was like, I guess it was over a year ago. It was like in October of 2019. And I was like, I know what, let's like add a pamphlet to this book. It'll be like a riff on uh, oh. like those CDC pamphlets. And so this is called Active Nightmare Outbreaks in the U.S., and I was like, let's have like a map of contagions, like the nightmare <laughs> contagions. And yeah, this seemed like I just, I was like, that will be a playful way, a playful addition. And it's not so funny, is it? <laughs> no, I actually thought it was so great because, and I didn't realize that was your idea, but it, it kind of, I feel like I'm the type of reader who would have paged through this started reading those images at the end and been like this is a weird book you know this is not <laughs> this is not something i'm used to one of my favorite dreams was the dream of a fresh hum humiliation oh. um, <laughs> your sex tape screening in the old cathedral i mean it's just like these are just brilliantly hilarious but also some of them are really like, genuinely disturbing there's this image of a meteor shower of jellyfish stingers i don't know if you all can see this but i mean they're real some of them are just genuinely upsetting but um but also hilarious but i i love that idea i love that you came up with it oh i had so much fun i thought that was like there's not a, a ton of new material you know a lot, i sort of yeah. tuned up some stuff but but that that was um that seems so fun to me and then it was like this extraordinarily weird experience of emailing with these really wonderful italian studio artists and you guys mm. can look them up all in la i think they're amazing but it was like so we had sort of mostly finished by December and like our language, there was a little bit of a language barrier. So that was also kind of hilarious, you know, because yeah. the revisions I was suggesting, you know, I'd be like, 
I feel like the crucifix is a little too photorealistic. <laughs> Do you think maybe like, <laughs> like, you know, like the hand that's coming out of the earth is a little rigid, you know, like <laughs> was this weird micromanager of these nightmares, you know, and I discovered yes. something new about myself or I was like, mm. I don't think we should illustrate the tank of hermit crabs. I actually feel it might be stronger choice to go with the jellyfish. <laughs> Oh, that sounds so fun! Oh, it's such a it was, yeah. It was so it was so fun, and then the, the 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 strange thing was, so we were just sort of finishing stuff up, and they were like, "Hey, we can't work on this now because we're all going under lockdown here." I mean, the coronavirus it sort of was like a speck on the horizon in December. You know, I mean, I think I was aware of it, but I had no idea. A few of us did, right? That mm-hmm. it would saturate the globe. So I thought that was the the, the strangest part of this whole experience for me was sort of we were looking at the CDC website for inspiration and then maybe two weeks later everybody was looking at that same website just for information it was very very spooky well that's what I I mean I think you know I mean all of us in our classes who've who've read this novella have been stunned by how prescient it is one of the one of the things we were talking about yesterday in haunted fictions was how this novella embraces uncertainty. And it just reminded us, a lot of us of the time early in the pandemic when we were just, it was so scary to be collectively uncertain because we're just used to being able to be like, look things up and and we all became like these overnight epidemiologists or whatever. But but that that kind of, that uncertainty is something that this novella leaves room for. Like at times it almost seems to embrace a space beyond language or beyond rational logic. Like when Trish goes to the night world, which is this sort of refugee camp where like people can, uh, insomniacs can go for these like maybe outlandish cures or something and and so i wanted i wanted to ask you about that i don't even know what my question is but i wanted to ask you if you could talk a little bit about writing toward uncertainty like creating space for the negative in this novella yeah i i love i'm so happy that um i mean i'm not happy obviously i would prefer a different context for us all (laughs) to read this in but i do think that that is I was thinking about this actually in our craft talk today, we were talking a little bit about surprise mm-hmm. and sort of the surprises, like, you know, going into something, sort of the ones that you're working towards and you're sort of a conscious engineer of, of, of these particular effects, you know, you, and then the, 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 I think the scariest thing about writing fiction and the best thing are those moments where you surprise yourself, right? Or where you really mm-hmm. don't know clause to clause what is going to show up on the page. And the night world for me was that a little bit. I think I had so much fun, like a child. I mean, dark fun. Our fun is not everybody's fun, obviously, but sort of like trying to think of a world where, and it's a little bit, it's sort of like a little nod to like Ray Bradbury or like just like the carnival boardwalk. I used to love that feeling as a kid, you know, where you, um, the fairground feeling. So there's sort of like this, you know, the like the Ferris wheel that looks like this giant sea anemone or something on like the Mm. city skyline, like this little sort of bubble opens up on the periphery of your city or your town. And it is like just this other world. And it's sort of like you can, it's almost like a hologram, you know, you can see like it's shabbiness. You can see like the like rust and the squalor and the grease. And then you can also feel like just the, the luminous fiction that it wants to be or something, right? So I sort of, I mean, I um, I think both things were present to me in this. There's like a sort of like a whimsical dreaminess that I really, I really was having fun just 
kind of thinking about what would it really be like if there, you could transfer dreams between bodies, which is like the only reason that I read and write in the first place, I'm sure. Like, it's, <laughs> it's just like books are just that, right? It's like, it is the original dream exchange, you know? Mm-hmm. But then also, yeah, I mean, the, I, th- I hope it's more fun than like the hydrochloroquine market. But I was also thinking about, I mean, is that wild or what? Like, we really did have a president who was like, bleach might solve the problem. <laughs> Or you could ingest the sun, you know. I mean, <laughs> and I, I have that same. I realized how much I'm not a scientist at all, so I really was so aware of how, like, every 72 hours, it seemed like a new understanding asserted itself, and I would just go with whatever the mm-hmm. seven people around me were doing. If we weren't touching surfaces, I was like, how could I have put my daughter in a swing set yesterday mm-hmm. at noon? And it just, it, I've never lived anything like that where there's sort of you have to contend in real time with how little we understand the story, you know, like how that we're now like that this, like all these storylines have merged in some global way. And what we really don't know. And I remember there was like this spate of journalism, like back in March of last year. Do you remember this where everyone was doing these like proleptic leaps into the future? <laughs> everybody, it was sort of, everybody was almost like we, it was so intolerable not to know what the heck was going on. That everyone was like, how history will regard March of 2020. And you're like, what? Like, come back with us, dude. You don't know. Like, yeah. Get back in the mud with us. Yeah. But I understood the impulse a little bit, right? It was just, you want to like, you wanted to just get out to like some place where this was all conjugated as history. It's deeply uncomfortable to yeah. have to face our, our own blinkered vision that way, you know? Mm. Um, yeah. I, I do feel like, you know, fiction allows us to kind of feel comfortable with not knowing, because that's mm-hmm. part of like what, what the impulse to write comes from, that desire to kind of wade into the unknown rather than to solve all the questions, right? But totally. I thought you did and that let, and let them And sort of, right, I, like think when, when fiction can feel really false is when someone's trying to connect all the dots, right? right. Or, yeah. or, or where, where those explanations fail or where you try to like line up motive and action or action and outcome in these really neat ways and it doesn't really life is so much messier and stranger than that and even our desire to be surprised I think there's something beautiful there you know you really want that in art I Mm -hmm. don't love surprises in life as I have discovered this year in this like domino rally of like nightmarish surprises but I do think there's something in art where like the stakes are reduced right so it's not your life it's not your son it's not your you know Mm -hmm. your but you you want to know, you know that your view is so limited and you want to be wrong in this weird way, right? Like to be mm-hmm. surprised is to be wrong. It's to mm. have your expectation defied or complicated or have your expectation exceeded in some way. And there's so much pleasure in that. And I was thinking like, I know that sounds so obvious, but I really was thinking recently like, why should that be so actually? Why should we take delight in being wrong? We're not like that in our regular lives. So why is it when you read a book, you're you're quietly hungering mm-hmm. to, to mm-hmm. be surprised in this way? And I think there's something beautiful about that. It's like we really want to extend our map of reality. We know how limited it is, and we know how faulty our and biased our views are. And so mm-hmm. you want something that feels true but is surprising. I don't know. I think yes. it's a good, I think it's a good quality is where I can yeah. I when I think about like the process of writing like the a failure to me is if especially in a draft is that if I can predict 
what is going to happen or if a reader can predict point to point what's going to happen or even on, you know, so yeah, that's true in what you're saying. You're like, how do I, how do I stick with the story long enough that it can surprise me and not be frightened of that when you're, well, when you're, and I'm thinking now, I mean, not to now, not to now embarrass you in turn on our intimate zoom, but I, one of the things that I thought was so brilliant and so like respectful in the test that did the damage when you're in the elephant's point of view and like to reject sort of like the cutesy anthropomorphic, I mean, you know, it's, it's just, it's, um, it's so respectful. And then even the formatting, right? Like this white space that is like, I guess, sort of like in line with my feeling around like the night world, or it's like, you mm -hmm. want to be honest about what can't really be known. You don't want a leap of empathy to become a kind of conquest or, a bad graft, right? Mm, yeah. Oh, I thought that was so um, beautiful. I love reading those sections and just even visually understanding like, okay, so <laughs> there are, you know, Lydia Millet has a story called Girl and Giraffe that I love. Oh, so I love much. it. So you know good. that story too? Yes. I love that story. Well, you know the story where like this animal escapes into a world beyond our understanding and there's just yeah. some like quick line about that, right? Where it's like out of this story and into their own. And mm -hmm. actually, you can't follow them there. Sorry. Yes. And, uh, this reminds me. This reminds me of Maud Casey's book, um, The Art of Mystery. Have you read that? It's a Grey Wolf press yeah. book. But she talks about Paul Yoon's story, a Paul Yoon novel where a character, there's just this one line where it says he's dreaming of castles. But he doesn't explain what the dream is about or why castles. And, it, and he says to her, like, he said to Maud Casey, like, I wanted to preserve that you know, as people, we have secrets or we have mysteries. And I wanted to preserve that for him, even if the reader wants to know more or expects to know more. Yeah. Yeah. I love that too. It's such a good lesson, right? That you don't actually have to gratify. You can excite an appetite yeah. and just leave it there. You know? mm -hmm. like, yeah. When, when things can feel really false, it's exactly when, when you're trying to collapse that mm. for yourself or for a reader. Yeah. Um, well, speaking of your masterclass, there's something you said in there that really intrigued me. And you were talking about the process of writing The Prospectors, which is a story I love, um, and, and how there was this pivot in the plot when you were writing and this pivot you were trying to accomplish. And it wasn't working because, this is your words, you didn't yet know what the protagonists were in flight from or what they were arrowing towards. And I, I just, I love that. Um, but so I was wondering, like, can you recall in the early phases of writing Sleep Donation, was there any wall that you kept running up against and, and how you kind of broke your way through? I don't know, it was a long time ago when you wrote it, though. It was a long time ago. I mean, I, you know what, I wonder if this happens to you sometimes, Sonia. I was writing this, like, totally doomed, like, albatross around my neck of, like, a uh, like a spruce moose. Do you guys know that, that plane here? It's out here in Portland. It's like... Um, <laughs> Who is that like super wealthy guy who sort of like lost his mind and grew his nails really long? He's like a, a joke now, but I'm sure he lived a painful life. Um, <laughs> oh dear. Um, oh, I can't even Google him now, but you'll just have to take my word. It was like, a, um, he wanted, he like built this plane and it was so like literally bloated with his ambition for it that it like flew like, yes, Howard Hughes. Thank you, Howard Hughes. Oh, okay. But the plane, the spruce goose, like, <laughs> video, because that's what happened to this novel. It was like so burdened with ambition that it was like, 
<laughs> it's inaugural and like terminal flight was like 30 yards no and then like so anyway there i was like sitting in this plane without an engine like you know with like my, my bikini and my luggage like oh boy you're so on an epic flight the flight of my life and then sleep donation was just gonna be like a 3,000 word vignette about this sleep van i just got excited i was like oh that's fun what if there was like a red cross but for insomniacs wouldn't that rule and I thought it was going to be like some Calvino Espinette. And then the weirdest thing, I think, was that it became so much about bureaucracy, which commercially, was that the way to go? Probably not. But I but I was really interested then. It sort of became about like this secondary epidemic of misinformation, like this rumor sprawl, and also the way that like these healthcare workers started to sort of like take on the symptoms of the, the demographic they were helping. And the protagonist, I don't know if this has happened to you, or like you don't love a character. I don't love that woman. She kind of bugs me. This sort of woman who's like traumatically looping her grief. But that's the voice. That was the voice that wound up being the one that, you know, for a while it was just sort of like a premise without any characters. So that was a big surprise mm -hmm. to me when I was like, oh, it's going to be this like, this scabby lady. And <laughs> you know? Oh, Trish, I, I like that. I think there can be sort of like this, I think sometimes when people talk about the arts, you know, especially when something's finished, I always have this like post-talk confabulation of how it came into being. And that can be so dangerous because I forget it was like a provisional mess for a long time. Mm -hmm. And also like by the time anybody starts talking to you, you're just like, <laughs> I don't know, you're just so excited. Like, <laughs> Yeah, there's no just like one breakthrough moment. It's just mess, mess, mess. Right, then... you're not like with your beaker sort of yeah. like determining like what would be the yeah. most expedient way to like to communicate right. my ideas. You're just like yeah. out there with your like <laughs> sandwich board, like just hitching. You're like, anybody? Like I'm yeah. just a avail very available woman here. <laughs> Tell me the story. <laughs> I gotta remember that Howard Hughes thing. I but I I I did feel like the I mean as much as you say it was like so much of problems just sort of resolving themselves or it seems like that that's what sort of what you're saying. But the world the what what we call world building I guess like the description of the systems was so it, it was it was totally captivating and also. Um, instructive to me. Like I was trying to figure out how is she able to occupy six pages and set up all these systems and make commentary about the America we live in and, and all of these things. And I think this is one of the questions in the question Q&A as well from, from um, I want to say Hutch Hutchinson. Um, and I'm sorry if I'm sort of mangling your question, but I can't find anymore. But, but his question, the question was um, like any advice about how to introduce all this kind of high level information and still have it feel interesting and part of the story or, or have movement or you know yeah i hope i hope it feels that way that makes me happy that you know i i do think there's something so sort of um totally goofy about the conceit in some weird twilight zone way and that we were talking a little bit in the craft class about well one of the th reasons i'm drawn to speculative fiction i'm sure is because it, you know you disarm yourself first like you you do sort of charm and disarm yourself first sometimes and it it relieves me of the pressure of thinking like if i had thought if i was going to write a book about extractive capitalism and you know the way that we we have an economy that really runs on the dreams of our children you know like it would just be a really bad op-ed i think like a 300 page op-ed so i was happy to have you know i think there's a way where 
there's something sort of liberating even about like a really bad idea. I feel like a mm. lot of my story ideas are sort of bad or just very like childlike, you know, or be like, what if a guy raised some tornadoes? Like these are the <laughs> ideas of my four-year-old son, you know, <laughs> like they're not really like uh, not so highfalutin, but there's something totally playful to me about that in a necessary way. I think like the kind of groping in the dark you do when you're just playing around, you do make these discoveries that you wouldn't nor you wouldn't make if you were writing kind of like a an argument that mm -hmm. you had to defend, you know, in the same way or whatever. So I don't know if that exactly I but I I um yeah, and I think it let you then, you know, you, you do just sort of discover your own politics sometimes as you're writing, like it just sort of like seeps into the groundwater in this way. So I thought I, I thought you know Saunders is a huge influence, and I, he's so good at writing these theme park universes that hold up a funhouse mirror to the you know just like mm -hmm. American rapacity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think at some point I also thought it was funnier, and I, this was a big mistake I made, which you you know well too, which is like I was like it'd be so you know I what did I do with the book? There's this little drawing of a baby with like this retro futuristic helmet, <laughs> and all these tubes are coming out. My son sees this and he's like, mama wrote a story about King Baby. You know, it's like, that is such a better story. I want to know about King Baby. <laughs> you need to like farm out his ideas somehow. You I know. Like I can like, sell them. Oh, what a better title than Sleep Donation, King Baby. <laughs> I love it. But it's too late. That ship has sailed or like that spruce goose has crashed to the earth. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah. But anyway, I, babies are not great sleepers. But I was thinking about, I thought this was so hilarious. Like in high school or whenever they assign it, like Jonathan Swift's like a modest proposal. I was, I was so scandalized by that. And so I was like, oh, you know, and it, even at eight, whatever, even as a teenager who knew nothing, I understood I was reading something totally darkly indicting of our own economic system, you know, so... I don't, but I, so I, I sort of think sometimes it's good to be a little bit in the dark about what you're doing and you can just trust that your the gleam of your mind is going to lead you in the right direction. And I do that too infrequently, but the stuff that I write that, that just sucks and fails, it's usually because I have a really conscious ambition for it. Mm -hmm. And here, I think it was helpful to me to think like, I'm going to take this conceit and I'm just going to follow it through as thoroughly as I can and have fun. So I'm going to say, if this were really possible, what are some of the downstream effects I can imagine of like a nonprofit? How long would like a sleep donation really be a free donation for? And then like you discover your own cynical heart along the way, you know, I'm like, yeah. I don't like, and you see this happening now. I think the eeriest thing was returning to this at a time when all of our devices are spying on us. And it's like sleep is like the last bastion of privacy, actually. You know, yeah. it's like advertisers are everywhere else tech is everywhere else you know we didn't even need a big brother we just hooked we just downloaded our consciousnesses into the cloud volitionally it's mm -hmm. weird it is and bizarre. So thinking yeah. about like it doesn't seem so far off to me that we would like wear sleep masks and upload our dreams yeah I, I mean and that i feel like the i mean i'm thinking of the bald eyeball of the phone is one phrase you use but the recurring eye and then the eye in the sky that might be watching us at you know a divine uh, presence um so there's no refuge there's no except maybe night world sort of but but then ref, the word refugee camp takes on a different quality when she's there it's it is a kind of refuge or there's something beautiful about being with people but i wanted to talk ask you since i brought up the metaphor i mean one of your um 
one of the things about your writing, I mean, there's so much about your style that is just so wonderful. And one of the things is your use of metaphor. And I, I have a question from Alex Horn, who is in your visitor visiting your masterclass, but I'm just going to read it because it's so, it's so capture something very apt um, about your work. Um, in all of your works, I'm routinely struck by craft at the sentence level. Metaphor and imagery are consistently unique, surprising, and yet they always feel exceptionally accurate to their subjects. The example that is currently lodged in my mind is the experience of Dory consuming both of the tonics at the Night World Bar. I was wondering if you had any advice to offer on how you get your sentences to shine so brilliantly and have them always seem to resist expectation in such a dazzling fashion. And if I could just tiny piggyback my question on, on the back of that, it's like, if you could talk about the process by which you're refining your sentences, things you're doing to kind of hone them. And I, I know this is sort of later on down the, or is it at the beginning of the process for you? Do you go sentence, perfect sentence, then next sentence, and then build? I love that question. I also, I just Venmoed you and Alex $400. You really flattered question. Woo. I feel like someone's be like, what happened to all those baby socks? That's, I feel like that's the most urgent, urgent in our house. So it's nice to, it's very nice to get these and, you know, uh, on a gloomy day. It makes me feel great. Thank you. I, I, um, I think my process is demented. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. I dated a man once, a famous novelist who I won't, I don't know why I'm, I just said it like that, but he is. <laughs> very, it was, it was Tanya. <laughs> like, that's no man. I, <laughs> I, I just mentioned this because he, he was sort of um, also like, uh, had like an ego, like a blinding sunrise. And I remember <laughs> he told me, he was like, well, I see myself as a cathedral builder. And I tried to imagine a universe where I could ever like earnestly tell anyone I see myself <laughs> as a cathedral builder. I was like, I see myself oh. as someone with mental illness, just like making <laughs> ornaments. And like, maybe there'll be a tree to put them on or maybe there'll never be a tree. You know, it's like, I, don't, I was like, <laughs> I wish I had like lumber and like that, you know, and like the yeah. guys were singing to me and I made a cathedral. I really feel like, I really feel like I go about this in a crazy way. And sentences are where all the pleasure is for me. Just like the micro pulse of language is so much of the pleasure. But then what can happen is you spend, you know, three weeks of your life just, you. I mean, I, I think like it would be better probably to sketch out some skeleton of a plot, but that's just not how I know how to work. And I honestly, I feel like I never even figure out what's interesting to me, except when I'm down in the weeds of sentences, you know. But that's unfortunate because it's well, <laughs> it, it produces amazing. Your your method is you know works for you. It, it's wonderful what you are able to do. So you don't you're not actually because things actually happen. You know in your work, I like I feel like a lot of your stories too. A lot is happening. So but you're not thinking about structure in a in a kind of um big picture sense you're not like okay now this happens now this maybe this should happen or is it more like sentence to sentence to sometimes sentence? sometimes i'll go in like the prospectors i did go in i did have this idea i had like seen a ski lift out here at timberline lodge which is, and it terrified me it was like summer and it was mobbed with dragonflies and also i come from miami so the ski lift just feels like some like kid icarus <laughs> like yeah. a very audacious thing for humans to do we're like, okay, I'm going to sit in this chair in the sky. Probably, you know, it's just like, I'm like, yeah. you think that's going to work? Good luck. Um, and it does. I don't know. But 
Um, so it, I, there was something haunting about this image. And then I was like, oh, it'd be so funny. I don't know why. But I, I was like, it would be funny if, if some girls went up. They thought they were going to like a party at a fabulous fantasy ski resort. And it was just like a lodge of the dead. And I was like, it's going to be really funny. It's going to be like an inverted underworld story. And then it like wasn't so funny. And I didn't know who these people were. So sometimes they'll be kind of like a, I'll have an idea about what the hinge is going to be. Mm. But I rarely know much about even what's interesting to me or like even why I'm haunted by that particular conceit or whatever. Mm. And with Sleep Donation, it was really similar. I was like, oh no, is this going to be about sisters again? And in fact, my sister wrote me and was like, dear sister, please stop writing about sisters. Love your sister. So. Uh, but I think, does that happen yeah. to you? Like you'll think you're doing something totally new, unprecedented in your creative life. And then it's like that B-horror movie where, like, it turns out the guy driving the cab is the killer. You're like, yes, getting out of that jam. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, yeah, I, I think of myself as very ambitious. You know what I mean? Like, in my in my fantasy version of, like, what kind of writer I am, I think, okay, everything is going to be different from the last. It's just going to be totally different. And then, yeah, I keep kind of coming back to the same like no, there's Tanya always a filmmaker <laughs> but but you know what i mean where you realize maybe even if it's not apparent to other people that you're sort of plugging into some of the same yeah outlets <laughs> yeah i mean i guess it's like your dna it's like the things that matter to you or the things that matter i don't know it's yeah i i yeah i don't know i mean this is a per like i just i'm curious personally like do, how do you think about your like do you feel like your goals have changed at all since like your first book and now, or like the way you, your, your relationship to writing, you know, I don't know if that's, yeah, I do. you know, I, that I do, or I feel like maybe kids have changed it a lot. And I think like, I used to reflexively sympathize with children, children <laughs> and animals. And I mean, I still do, you know, but I think now that I am like complicit in so much evil as like a, like a woman, like rocketing towards middle age in the, in the way that like it, it does sort of change your orientation towards this realm and I think things have gotten a little more overtly political for me in some ways I mean it probably doesn't seem so from sleep donation but I do think like I was surprised when I went back um you know this was drafted in 2014 and I, I do feel like there are some parts that almost are borderline sermonizing in this book you know like there's some section where it's just sort of about like our borderless appetites and mm -hmm. um the way that we have completely failed to respect nature's limits and the limits of the body and this that kind of purgatorial space that we occupy that that is like so such a, a function of the anthropocene you know and so it started mm -hmm. i was like oh like i think some of those more panoramic comments you know i my first book was really focused on these like wall-eyed adolescents coming of age in florida like, i'll always be interested in wall-eyed adolescents but i do think you know and, and it was all first person and i think part of that is that i i just didn't feel like it could be responsible for more than one consciousness you know <laughs> i i was just like oh that's just too much responsibility let's zip into the one bodysuit you know so even sort of like changing the filters a little and like trying to experiment mm -hmm. with scale and scope feels a little mm -hmm. different. I, I, I wanted to ask a question about your, about short stories. Um, Cause arts class, um, I think they're reading vampires in the lemon grove. Um, and oh, so they he had a question about story order or they had a question about story order and, and like, how do you think about like any thoughts on how you figure out the shape of the whole collection? Yeah, I would love to hear your answer for this too. You guys, I remember every single place that I ever was reading Tanya's books. Does that happen to you? Like when I really love something, 
I just remember the physical location where I was reading oh, it. And like aerograms, I was in like the saddest coffee shop in the world. But it didn't matter because Tanya was with me. <laughs> it was like a coffee shop where it was like it really needed you to believe it was a coffee shop even though it was just clearly like an attic in philadelphia you know Uh, but i but i love i love uh that collection so much i i think it's sort of like making a mixtape which is probably the wrong reference for your your Mm. zoomer students but a little bit where you're sort of thinking about it you know you don't want you want conversations to be happening across stories but you don't maybe want too much repetition or you don't want there to be some tonal variety. So maybe you're not going to put your, your two darkest stories, you know, back to back. I thought with, um, with vampires, you know, the title story felt a little bit like the, the auntie, like Dorothy, we're not in Kansas anymore, just to kind of introduce, introduce readers to sort of like, well, this is how a lot of these stories are going to operate. They're going to be hopefully funny and supernatural and maybe some distortion is going to be used to get at truth hopefully right and then i my i don't know if this is true of all collections i feel like people tend to put their own favorite stories or the ones that they think are the most powerful first and last yeah and maybe if there's one that you're like a little less sure about you're gonna shuffle it into the middle like yeah yes yeah. <laughs> definitely have those yeah. i mean you want to believe it's like all killer, killer. killer but maybe it's a little silly like <laughs> in the middle there yeah i i remember feeling like i mean it's so long since i thought about this with aerograms but like i had one story that was not i mean most of them are like kind of realist and you know but um there was one story that wasn't and um and i didn't know what to do with it and we have the same editor and she was like me this might this is too little not in the same vein as the rest of these it was about a girl who marries a ghost but i was like maybe i'll just put it at the end and it'll be like you know on t- on, on tapes as you say like on tapes there used to be like these like secret tracks the sometimes secret bonus the track. secret yeah. bonus track that like kind of is totally different from all the other stuff yeah but um but anyway i don't know I don't know oh, if that. I, love that. I don't even know if people so read them much. in order anymore. You know, that's the thing, and I, I yeah. think that's true too. And I sort of, I don't always myself, right? So it is that is true. You yeah, know? and I am, um, yeah. but I do think you know, there's, I don't. I'm sure this is true for both of us. There are a lot of stories that are not collected, and so you do sort of want to like gather your strongest work, whatever you feel that to be. I mean, <laughs> you don't need to waterboard everybody in your consciousness with everything. Yeah. But I do, you know, I'm trying to remember Vampires was a while ago, but I think I had a couple monster stories grouped together. And then Mm -hmm. there's sort of like a more realistic interlude in a world that's closer on the continuum to consensus reality. And then it's like ghosts and monsters again, you know, so you get like a little reprieve. I don't know. Yeah. But I think a lot of that is sort of intuitive, like just thinking about rhythmic alteration and like sort of thematically what what two stories maybe have something interesting to say to one another i um wanted to ask a question from our i've been ignoring the question thing i wanted to ask you uh okay i I see a question from jenna morgan about publishing agent kind of things so i wanted to ask you what is your relationship like with your agent how did you how did she find you or vice versa this is a lot of questions. You can pick whatever you want to say. Um, how does the editing process go? Maybe we'll we'll just stop there for a second. Like maybe like with you know your relationship to your editor as well. Yeah, I mean this is so cool. Tanya and I do have the same editor, and I have to tell you, also embarrassing, Tanya. I have had like one hundred conversations behind Tanya's back over the years with my editor, 
with like I love her. any she number loves like you. Laura Vandenberg, Jennifer Egan, Nathan Engler, like 1,000 other authors who are like, I love Tanya. And I get like kind of proprietary. I'm a writer's writer's writer. I'm like, I love Shakira in Miami in the 90s. So welcome aboard, latecomers. You know, like I do feel like. I'm the biggest secret. Um, but yeah, I, my agent, you know, this, this is maybe good advice for you guys. Um, don't be self-deprecating in a letter to an agent who doesn't know you. That's fine to be self-deprecating with your pals. Don't go out being like, here's what I think sucks about this collection. Would you like to read it? Because no one is going to read that. They're going to be like, no, thank you. So anyway, I did that. And then we had a professor, a wonderful professor at Columbia, Ben Marcus. And he was like, how's it going looking for an agent? And I was like, not so great, Ben. And he looked at my cover letter and I was like, I think I see the problem. <laughs> so um, I was very lucky and I, that I, you know, when I, I queried people who were the agents of other writers I felt an affinity with. And I think that can be a smart way to go about it. If you're not sure, I mean, I guarantee you like a book that you love that person, if they're not a monster, they thank their agent inside it somewhere. So that's one way to like discover who's, you know, who represents whom. But I, and I think it basically in the end, when I revised my letter and stopped trashing myself in my work, it went better for me. And yeah, I think I was just like, Oh, I love the people on your list. And I think that I'm, I feel like I'm part of that family tree, you know, or I feel, you know, I feel, I feel so much uh, affinity with the other people that you represent. But it's really so subjective. And I think like another, I wouldn't have guessed this when I was uh, in our program, Tanya, but like rejection never ceases. Picture like the most kind of, I mean, like, I mean, yeah, just it's just, you know, it's all, it's, it continues to be a little bit of a struggle. So it's good to have a thick skin. It's, it's a cruel, it's a cruel thing that you have to be sensitive enough to channel all these voices and then just sort of like some, some lumbering rhinoceros who just keeps like... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Walking through walls, like. Yeah, I feel like that. I feel like I, well, so, so one thing I've developed is the complete forgetfulness. Like I just, and that has served me well because I forget <laughs> what I applied to or what I, what I. Oh yes. And then I get the rejection. Well, this I'm is like, the tree oh, of amnesia, what? right? That, yeah. The apple from the tree of amnesia. I totally feel that way because when you're in the middle of it, you're like, it's so much effort just to apply. Yeah, for like yeah. some of these fellowships or whatever else right, it is. Right. And you're like, I don't even get a free t-shirt. And and yet, <laughs> like, I don't know, magically or the same. Like I, you know, I had this experience like not long ago at all where I was like, I hope, I hope this magazine takes this story. And in fact, they did not. But by the time I got that news, so much other thing, you know, it's like yeah. a pandemic. The world is in crisis. You're like, well... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's tough. it is a funny thing. You just have to really, you you have to let the your the urgency you feel like and the joy of like putting the words on the page be your chief pleasure. Yeah, and just trust that. Like I, I don't know why I'm telling you guys this. This is like the weird intimacy of Zoom. I feel like in a room, in a room, some mental intern would show up to like cut the mic, but. <laughs> My friend who's an actress just sent me a clip of Denzel Washington. I can really recommend it to you guys. And it's just Denzel's life advice. And Denzel is like talking about how if you hang around a barbershop for long enough, you're going to get a haircut. And that was, <laughs> I don't know. I found it really moving when he was saying these lines. So just stay in the barbershop. Thanks. 
Stay yeah. in the barbershop, guys. Uh, that's that's moving. <laughs> but don't moving. you find? I mean, I even feel like there is no other profession. Like, thank goodness, I feel very lucky to be self-employed, basically, because no other boss would accept this rate of failure. Any other <laughs> boss would be like, "You need to find something else to do with your time." Like this. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, I, I, I feel like, yeah. I, I, yeah. We. Well, yeah. I now I'm getting get weirdly personal but i'm not because there are a lot of students here on this thread so um <laughs> yes Karen. yes i am completely unproductive and it's fine um it's natural um can i i know we're so close on time but can i ask you like two more questions yes if Ooh. one is is denzel washington married he is he's, he's, he he's is oh i know that i knew that at age 13. i knew that at age 13. um I looked it up. So um, let me see. Let me just go through the little thread um, quickly. Oh, my student Adam um, asked, at what point in working on a piece do you have a sense for what length it will be? Short, novella, or novel? Do you do you know from the jump or somewhere along the way? I'm eager oh, to know. I feel like George Saunders was asked this question, and I took so much hope from his answer. And he was basically like, the older I get, the more quickly I know if something's gonna work or not, and the more quickly I have a sense of like, it's DNA if it wants to be, you know, a short, short story, a longer story. And I was like, probably as I get older and wiser, I too will acquire this intuition, but it has not happened for me. And it always feels like playing the accordion badly. As per my description of Sleep Donation, where I was like, this should be a 3000 word vignette. And then I was like, uh-oh, it's 14,000 words and it feels no sign of slowing down. <laughs> like, so I do sort of feel like, and my, like reliably, you know, it really doesn't matter. If someone is like, hey, will you write us like a 500 word mini essay? I will write four times as much as you do. It doesn't matter what, like, what the requirement is. Like if they're like, this, show, this story should probably be 5,000 words, it'll be like at least twice that long. And yeah. That just, even my voicemails are way too long. Our friend Carrie, <laughs> Carrie's always like, oh my God. Okay. <laughs> You're the reason that lady cuts you off. She's like, it's because of you. <laughs> oh, um, I wish I had a better answer. I, I really wish I had like more of a sense. I do sometimes think like, there's some things you know should be a pretty short story. If I if it's like from the point of view of a dog, I'm, you know, in my case, um, I'm like, oh, thank you. But I'm like, this is not going to be a trilogy. This will be a story. Or like some... Some, some of the times that I really love what you can do in a story is you can have like a really wild conceit that you would not be able to sustain for 300 pages. And yet, you know, you can like set up your circus tent for, for 12 pages and see what it yields. Yeah. yeah. But do you find, I, cause Tanya is like such an excellent, she's like an Amazonian. She like writes all <laughs> lengths beautifully. I feel like a lot of people are like, oh, I'm naturally an, a novelist or a story writer, but Tanya is amazing at both. But do you feel like you have a sense going in what something wants to be? Well, thank, thank you. But I, I, I feel like, again, and I, I honestly think that this, you and I are in a very similar point in motherhood. And I don't, to, I don't know to what extent you want, you want to talk about this, but like I'm at a place where I don't sleep. Like I, I'm just not sleeping. So, so the arcs of my, my stories are starting to conform to, the, to what my brain can hold. Yeah. So I feel like my short stories are getting shorter. And then the novel that I'm working on, like it's almost like these little arcs. Cause I just, I just feel like in my head, I'm like, I just need to get to the end of this little arc. Like I can't sustain yeah. like a huge architecture, yeah. Yeah. you know, I can't remember totally. names, you know. You know, our friend Rivka, 
Yeah. Also, I'm just like amazing supernova of women writers. But she wrote Little Labors. It came out like, I don't know, a few months before I had my son. And I remember like reading it and thinking like, oh, I am looking into like, this is sort of like a fossil of what, how, yeah, exactly that. They're these sort of like elliptical bursts of insight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it like so perfectly mirrored like my own cognitive experience, you know, mm-hmm. like I was just mm-hmm. like, oh, wow. Like they were so hyper saturated with like meaning but they were like you know really short and there was a lot of white space and i do kind of think that that's how my brain is working also and it's interesting you say that like um because in this the only way i've found to move forward in a novel very very slowly is exactly that it's these really short chapters mm-hmm. because trying to scaffold more than that feels impossible <laughs> yeah yeah uh-huh. oh it feels so um energizing and less lonely. I mean, I am paddling through the middle of a novel draft 10,000 and it just feels very inspiring and like, you know, like I have company just talking to you and I I just, you're such a genius and we're so grateful to have you. Let's finish our Um, books at the same time and then we'll all be vaccinated at that point and we can just drink. Drink cocktails on a boat. Let's like find. <laughs> yes, book launch on a boat, like a, baby. Yeah, like jacuzzi literary festival <laughs> three thousand or whatever. <laughs> I'm buying my bikini. Okay, there here comes Greg. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that was just absolutely. Greg came just in time for the phases and commitments part of. <laughs> <laughs> that was really really amazing, and Tanya, thank you so much for leading a great conversation. Um, Karen Russell, thank you so much for being our first visiting writer of the spring. An absolutely delightful um, exchange over the last hour. Thank, thank you, Karen. You thank you so much, Tanya. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, Jim. <laughs> All right. See you in Dimensions next time. Thanks for tuning in to this Watershed Lit podcast. Visit this channel again for more content soon. For more about the Center for Literary Engagement and Publishing Practice, go to watershedlit.gmu.edu.